let's go before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your holy throne, Lord, to worship and praise your holy name. We honor you, Lord. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who has shown us the way of salvation by the working of his Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who was given to all those who belong to him, those that the Father gave to him before the foundation of the world. And Lord, we pray in this hour, we pray, Lord, for help, we pray for light, we pray for sanctification of your church, sanctification of your people, sanctification of your gospel in their hearts, that they may be drawn to you by the things that we are hearing, Lord, that they may not be overtaken, Lord, by the evil testimony that has been cast on the name of the church. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for keeping us from stumbling. And we know we'll make it to the end because you promised it and because we know that you resurrected and that you ever intercede for your people. And we also know that we'll make it because you said all power and authority has been given to you. And Lord, we also know that we'll make it because you said you are the good shepherd and you will lose none of those that the Father gave to you. And we also know that we will make it because you said this is the will of the Father that we will not be lost and that the Father is greater than all. And no one can snatch any of those that he gave to you from his almighty hands. So Lord, we pray and we thank you for this time again to go into your word and hear what says the Lord and hear the message that you'd have your people to hear even in this hour and time. Lord, may you bless the hearts of your people that they may hear and glory and bless the name of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray in his precious name. Amen. John chapter 6, 46 to 51. John 6, 46 to 51. This is what the word of the Lord says. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. By way of title, he who believes has eternal life. He who believes has eternal life. We are in what is called the fourth discourse. The bread of life discourse by the Lord Jesus. And I have not even yet talked about the I am statements. I promised some two weeks ago that I would actually take time 
to give more understanding on the I am statements because those statements are theologically important and we have to understand what Jesus was trying to get us to understand by him saying, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, and such similar statements. But again, we won't be talking about the I am statements today. So I'm hoping that maybe next week, the Lord will grant us opportunity to work that theology of the I am statements. But there are seven major discourses by the Lord in the book of John. And we are in the fourth discourse. I have not been talking about it in those terms. But there are seven major discourses that the Lord was giving some deep theological teaching. We have the first one, the new birth in John chapter 3. And we have the water of life discourse in John chapter 4 with the Samaritan woman. We have the divinity of the Son in John chapter 5. And of course, number 4 is the bread of life discourse in chapter 6, which is the one that we are talking about. And then we have the life-giving spirit in John 7. The light of the world in John 8. And the good shepherd in John 10. And the good shepherd in John 10. And you also remember that there are seven signs that John recorded for us. Seven signs or miracles that are recorded for us in the book of John. And you can see the number seven there. What that is insinuating. Is perfection. So we'll talk about those things in more detail as the Lord brings it to me and as he gives us understanding. But this is where we are. We have been talking about salvation and how God saves sinners. It seems that has to be always the discussion that we have to have. We have to always be talking about how God saves sinners. Because we need saving. Sinners need salvation. And sinners are ignorant of how God saves sinners. Sinners are ignorant of themselves and are ignorant of God. They think that somehow they are just going to show up before God. And God is going to give them a big hug, bear hug, and say, well, you don't even know how long I've been waiting for you to come. I missed you so much. My life will never be the same now that you are here. But that's false. That's a very false understanding of who God is and how sinners approach him. And the Lord Jesus Christ has come to teach people how to approach God. To teach people how God saves sinners. And we have to listen to everything that he says because he is God and he knows everything about approaching God. 
Because when we are talking about approaching God, we are not just talking about approaching God the Father. We are also talking about approaching Jesus himself because whatever God is, Jesus is. So if you have problems with God the Father, guess what? You have problems with God the Son and you have problems with God the Holy Spirit. So Jesus alone is the authority on all things pertaining to God, salvation, and all things. And so in this encounter with the Jews, we have a discourse, a discourse in which the Lord drills to them, and even ourselves, the exclusiveness of Jesus Christ in salvation. And how one cannot bypass him to enter into this blessedness. In our story in the book of John, the Jews have followed Jesus because they want to be fed. They are following Jesus because Jesus has performed a miracle in which he fed the 5,000 men And to their way of thinking, they are thinking, this is the man that we need. He could help us with our enemies, and he could help us with providing us with free food. But the Lord says to them, in John 6, 26 and 27, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. And the Jews, we know, were failing to understand the significance of what Jesus had done. And because they failed to understand the significance of what Jesus had done, They continue to follow him, not for him, but because of what he was giving them, the food that would fill their bellies. But the Lord took the opportunity to teach them about his mission and tell them that seeking him merely for the physical things that he provides is a wrong motive and it will lead one to death. It is working for food that perishes. But there is a food that endures to eternal life. And this food cannot be had by human physical exertion. Not by human effort. But has to be given to them by him as a gift. So if this gift has to come to anybody, it cannot be by anything that men do but has to be given by Jesus himself as a gift. But the Jews are oblivious to spiritual things, like all natural men born in Adam. All natural men born in Adam are born in darkness, and until they have been given a new birth, they will continue to follow Jesus for the physical things that he gives. The Jews perceive the Lord as saying, 
there's actually a work that they could do themselves in and by themselves so as to get this food that does not perish. So they came to Jesus and said, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? But the Lord Jesus says to them, No, this is not about the works. This is not about the plural works. You already have been doing way too many works. You have been trying to follow the 613 commandments that you have not even obeyed, not even a single one of them. But there is a work for you to do, and this is not something that you can do in yourself or by yourself, but it's a work that God has to do in you, and that work is believe in him whom he sent. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So the work of God is for sinners to believe in him whom God has sent. You can't work your way into eternal life. Because you can't. And any such gospel that says Jesus plus something else that you have to do or kick in to be saved is a false gospel and can't save you. It falls under the heading of works. And Jesus says, no, that heading will condemn you. You want to go under the heading of work. And the work is you believe, but you can't believe unless God causes you to believe. But the Jews failed to receive Jesus because to receive Jesus requires grace. For a man can receive nothing unless it has been given them from above. It requires grace to receive grace. It requires grace to receive and understand the gospel, the simplicity and singularity of Christ and his gospel. And the appearing of Jesus is the appearance of the terms of grace. The very appearance of Jesus is the appearance of the terms of grace. When we are talking about the terms of salvation, we are saying Jesus. Jesus meets all the terms of salvation. And that is why the gospel is simple, but can be as complicated as you want it to be, but never exhausted. And yet it's so simple enough to say, all the terms of salvation are in this name, Jesus. So the terms of grace are Jesus alone. The terms of grace are God alone. And because it is Jesus alone, only grace can give to a sinner without allowing opportunity to mix God's works with theirs. God does not want to mix his works with that of a sinner. He does not want to mix his works with that of angels. He just does not want to mix with anybody. He just wants to be alone. He just wants to be God. He is holy. 
And people minimize that because they don't know what that means. And so, because God does not want to mix his works by any of those of the creature, he gives faith. Because faith has no contribution from the sinner. True faith has no contribution from a sinner. Faith is a gift from God as is repentance. Faith is a work of God in a believer because there is none who is able to believe in Jesus by themselves. There's no one. There's absolutely no one who can believe in Jesus by themselves. They have to be taught of God to believe in Jesus. And the Jews realize that Jesus is playing hardball with them. So they put him to a challenge. They are trying to humble Jesus. Because you see, Jesus is bringing these terms that are humbling to the Jews. And the Jews think that somehow they also can play hardball with Jesus and humble him and say, we are going to ask you something that you can't do yourself. You feed us the way Moses fed our forefathers. Perform a sign, Jesus. Moses fed our forefathers for 40 years with manna. And Jesus, if you are anything like Moses, you have to do better than him. You have to do at least what Moses did. Moses fed more than 1 million people for 40 years. And Jesus, you only fed us yesterday. So you can't be greater than Moses. You have to be a much better vending machine. This is name it and claim it theology, right? (laughs) But the Lord corrects their understanding of their history and says in John 6, 32 and 33, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. The Lord says to them, Moses gave your fathers nothing. Nothing. It was God the Father, my Father, who, by the way, is not your Father, who gave manna to the children of Israel in the wilderness. So forget Moses and the bread that he distributed. I come with better bread, the bread of God that comes down out of heaven. And this bread gives life not just to the Jews only, but to the world. But not everyone in the world. Not everyone in the world. But it is bread that shall be given to some who are not the fold of national Israel. It goes beyond the boundaries of ethnic Israel. And if this bread gives life, then Moses' bread could not give life. Otherwise, there would be no need of the bread that I give now. And thus, forget Moses. Jesus was saying by this statement, I am superior to Moses. For I feed not just the Jews, 
as Moses did, but I feed the whole world. But the Jews obviously do not understand what the Lord was saying. And so he tells them about why they could not understand what he was saying. Yes, they were hearing his words, but were not perceiving or understanding the meaning of what he was saying. So he said to them in John 6, 35 to 40, we are building our background for today's sermon. This is today's sermon. (laughs) So he said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. And this is the reason why you don't believe, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So the Lord Jesus Christ identifies what this bread from heaven is and says, I am the bread of life. He is the bread of God and in him is contained life. And he who comes to him will not hunger or thirst. And this is not talking about physical satisfaction of hunger or thirst as Sister Sarah Samaritan woman was thinking. But this is a picture of salvation. Those who were in the wilderness were subject to hunger and thirst, and they needed a constant provision of manna and water from the rock and needed healing from the bites of the fiery serpents. But all sinners are in the wilderness of sin, in this world of sin, this desert. And the provision that they need is not more manna, but the bread of life. But the Jews do not believe. The Jews do not believe because, according to Jesus, they do not belong to him because the Father did not give them to him. So Jesus did not leave the rejection or acceptance of him to the hands or will of man. He says, to believe in him is a sovereign work of God. God has to give someone to Christ. God has to choose them. And those that the Father chose and gave to Christ will always come to Christ. They don't come at the same time. They don't come the same way. But they always come to Christ. They are always going to find themselves in the fold of those who belong to Christ. But the ones who were chosen were chosen not because of their own goodness 
or their own merits. God did not look through the telescope of time to see who would choose Christ, who would exercise their free will and make Jesus into Lord and Savior and invite Jesus. The Bible is clear to say those who were chosen were chosen according to the election of grace. Those who are in Christ were chosen according to the election of grace in Christ Jesus. And so it is only the elect that come and believe in Christ. And one does not believe to become elect. But rather they believe because they are elect. And one does not believe to have eternal life. They believe because they have eternal life. That's the theology of Jesus. So before you came to Christ, even though you were clueless about it, you already in the mind of Jesus and God possessed eternal life. That's what he's saying. And all the chosen in Christ who come to him, all of them and the one who comes to him from this chosen group of people will not be cast out. None will be cast out. That is, none will be lost because that is the will of the Father. According to Jesus, the Father's will for his people The church, the elect, the saints, which means the same group of people. And none of these people are saints or the elect because they fed the hungry. They are not elect because of some work that they did in themselves. They are not saints because they are morally upright. They are elect only because... Of God's grace. In election. The father's will. For all the elect. All the saints. Is that. None. Will be lost. And if this is the father's will. Then none is going to be lost. Jesus will not lose. Any of those that the father gave to him. It is false, it is false, and it is false teaching that a person chosen and redeemed by Christ can be lost so as to go to hell. Jesus said it is impossible, it cannot happen. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him who have eternal life and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus brackets your whole life from the beginning to the end and he secures it. And he says, I am the insurance to that. I am going to make sure that it happens even at the very end. So the Lord speaks to salvation in two terms. Salvation as a present reality now is time and salvation as an eschatological 
end time reality. That if you are saved now, then you are also saved at the end of the ages. So for you to be saved at the end of the ages, you have to be saved now. You can't be saved after you've died. You either possess life now or you don't. If you die without possessing life in Christ, you are dead even at the end of the ages. That's the teaching of Jesus. So the Lord promises to secure all those that the Father gave to him now. And he will also raise them at the end of the ages because this is the will of the Father. So you don't play with the gospel. This is the will of the Father from eternity. That's the decree of the Father from eternity. So you can't come up with all your foolishness and say, Oh no, by the way, Jesus is going to lose some people that the Father gave to him. We don't submit to that kind of foolishness. But the Jews are not amused by these statements by Jesus, as you would expect from all sinners before they are born again. They particularly don't like his claim of having come down from heaven because they too understand as the Jews in Jerusalem in John chapter 5 that Jesus is insinuating deity. And every time you come and tell people that Jesus is God, they don't like that. And it's not new. It happened then and it's still going to happen in our time. The Jews think they know him. The claim by Jesus cannot be tolerated and should not be tolerated by any good thinking person. So they grumble. So they grumble. Isn't this the Jesus that we know from our neighborhood? We know his parents. There's no way that Jesus can make such a claim. There's no way that Jesus could accomplish all my salvation. There's no way. There has to be something in there for me to kick in. There has to be... Oh no, there's no way that God can choose people to salvation. There's no way. There has to be my decision there to reject or accept him. I just can't have free lunch, you know. (laughs) I can take care of myself. That's the folly of man. And this is why they stumble at Jesus. But the Lord answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. Do not grumble. Be still and know that I am the Lord. Do not grumble. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught of God Everyone who has had and learned from the Father comes to me. So the Lord says to them, And to all men, whatever the Lord Jesus is saying to the Jews, is also saying to all men, No one can come to him 
that is believe in him that is to make a true testimony of him that is to receive him as the Messiah, as the Son of God, unless the Father draws that person to Christ. No one who is not born again of God can come to Christ. No one. That's a universal negative. Absolutely no one can come to Christ unless the Father draws them to Christ. To come to Christ is only by the sovereign will, power, and choice of God, and not of man. And these again are terms of grace. And grace is humbling, and that's why sinners are driven crazy when they hear the terms of the gospel. This teaching by the Lord rips into pieces the free will argument in salvation. And yet sinners will try to find ways to sneak in their choice of Jesus somewhere in this process. When a person comes to Christ, it seems like they are the ones who are making the decision. But there's more to it. And the scripture has given us more understanding as to what exactly happens for someone to come to Christ. There is more happening behind the scenes that a lot of people are oblivious of. Just like what happened to Abimelech in Genesis 20. You know the story of Abimelech. Genesis 20. Verse 1 to 6, I'll read it. Abimelech is with Abraham and he takes Sarah, wanting to make Sarah his wife. And he gets in trouble. And he gets in trouble. And when he got in trouble, he tried to defend himself. And when he tried to defend himself, God showed him that, no, he wasn't as righteous as he thought. The Lord is the one who kept him from sinning against the Lord. Hear this. Genesis 20, 1-6. Now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of Negev, of the Negev, and settled between Kadesh and Sher. Then he sojourned in Gera. Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my wife. So Abimelech, king of Gera, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? <laughs> so Abimelech claims his innocence. Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister, and she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart, you have done this. And I also kept you 
from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. So Abimelech thinks that the reason why he did not touch Sarah was because of his own integrity. And God says, no, Abimelech, that's not the whole story. This is the full story. I am the one who sovereignly worked to prevent you from sinning against me. Abimelech, it's not you who was righteous. It is I who prevented you from sin. I am the one who prevented you from sinning against me. But did Abimelech know that it was the Lord who prevented him from sinning? No, he did not know that. And so many free willers out there hold to the foolish theology of Abimelech. They think they are coming to Christ by their own integrity, by their own power, by their own decision making. And the Lord says, yes, you came to Christ. But that's not the whole story. I am the one who drew you to him. Otherwise, you were not coming. I am the one who chose you in him. I am the one who gave you a new birth and gave you faith and repentance so as to come to Christ. Now, that is the true story and complete story. And that is our testimony. Unless God the Father changes the heart and nature of a sinner by quickening them, making them spiritually alive and draws them to Christ, they are not ever coming to Christ. And coming to Christ is not just saying the name of Jesus or saying some correct things about Jesus or agreeing with some things that Jesus said and choosing and selecting things that we think are agreeable with us about the Jesus that we have made after our own image, but to say everything that Jesus says about himself. There's only one way of coming to Christ. And it is for one to come with no claim of merit in themselves and with the testimony that Jesus Christ is everything that God says Jesus is. For you can't have anything to do with Jesus if you deny any part of who Jesus is. If you deny that Jesus is God, you have no part in Jesus. If you deny that Jesus Christ is man, you have no part in Jesus. If you deny that Jesus Christ finished salvation, you have no part in Jesus. If you deny that Jesus died and resurrected, you have no part in Jesus. And any who claim to have come to Christ and yet still think that they contributed something to their coming to him have not yet come to Christ. To come to Christ means to realize that there is no work in you that commands you before God so as to be accepted by him. A faith that brings one to Christ does not claim anything but grace alone. 
There is no networking when it comes to salvation. Networking can help someone to get a job in this life, but not in heaven. A faith that says it figured out Christ by itself is not a saving faith. True faith says, I can't figure out Jesus. But I believe. Lord, help my unbelief. The one whom the Father draws to Christ has to be taught of God to believe in Christ Jesus. The one who has saving faith says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I do not find. This is what the Father continues to teach those who have been born again. When you are born again, you do not become good. You just become aware of who you are. You become aware that you actually are so bad more than you thought. Being born again does not make you good. But it sets you on the path of becoming good through the sanctification of the spirit and the ultimate glorification of the believer. So when one is taught by the Father, one who is taught of the true faith in Christ, this is what they see. They see their vileness. My sins are always before you. They see their inability to be good. They see their insufficiency to come to Christ by themselves. They are taught that faith is a work of grace and is not found in all men. They are taught that Jesus Christ is the only sufficient provision of salvation because he alone is the bread of life. They are taught by the Father that without Jesus, they are nothing. Nothing. All these arguments by people only come because they think there's still something about them that's significant for their salvation. But the ones who have been truly taught of God have the testimony that Jesus Christ alone is their sanctification. He is their righteousness, their redemption, and their wisdom from God. They are taught to fear, they are taught to love, and to hope in Christ alone. And they are taught to let go of all things that they think will make them more acceptable by God. So the Lord says, Not that anyone has seen the Father, And that will be our first verse for today. Not that anyone has seen the Father. Except the one who is from God, he has seen the Father. So the Lord is quick to tell the Jews that they have a wrong view about God. They would interpret his statements as saying, If someone had from God, 
then necessarily they would see God. But remember, Jesus has just said, any who has learned and has been taught of the Father will come to him. So Jesus is quick to qualify that statement and says, the teaching of the Father does not cause you to see him with your eyes. You can't see him. But if you belong to Jesus, you will hear from the Father. And the evidence that you have heard from the Father is that you have a correct confession of who I am. So Jesus says, I am the only one who has seen God the Father. Because the Father and I are one and we have this intimate relationship because I am in him and he is in me. And if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And I have seen the Father because I am from him and I have seen him not as the angels have seen him, but I have seen him because I am God. And I mediate all the revelation of what God is and who God is. And I mediate all the work of God. And so this was in keeping with what John already said in John 1.18 where he said, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So Jesus was saying, in verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. He who believes has eternal life. And this is the third time in this chapter that Jesus has used truly, truly in this discourse. In verses 26 and verse 32 and now in verse 47. And Jesus is making the emphasis of how men are to possess life. This is Jesus' mission. To show men the way of salvation. And the possession of life is intrinsically tied to him. Life is in himself. And he also gives us the way that we may get it. And it is only by believing in him. But pay attention to what Jesus said. Jesus said, the one who believes already possesses eternal life. Why? Because life is not in believing, but in God. God has already decreed by his will to give life through Christ to all those that he chose and gave to the Son. And so faith is the evidence that one belongs to Christ. Faith is the evidence that you have life. Faith is the evidence that you have union with Christ. And if you have union with Christ, it means you have life. This is not free will teaching. Because free will teaching makes everything contingent upon you. That life cannot be had until you do this and do that. 
But God says, no, it's actually the opposite. You do this because you already possess. And you possess because the Father chose you and gave you to the Son. In John's writing, he puts salvation, as I said, in the now and not yet. Salvation is a present reality and also salvation is a future reality. He says the one who believes now has eternal life and has passed out from death into life and yet will also in the future possess eternal life which will be the consummation of all that God has given them in Christ. So eternal life. Eternal life is possessed even now by all those that the Father has given to Christ. And these are all those who believe and the ones who believe do so because they already possess eternal life. And men do not understand this. Because you hear at funerals people just saying all kinds of things. You can tell that they don't know any theology about salvation. Rest in peace. There's no resting in peace outside Christ. Okay. If you don't already have it right now, there's no resting in peace beyond the grave. You've got to possess Christ right now. So Jesus says, you're actually going to go faster than you thought, brother Stan. You were turning your eyes on me. <laughs> as you're reading this chapter, as you see even next week, the conversation continues to center on the bread of life. And Jesus continues to repeat it. And if he repeats it, that's what he wants us to do. <laughs> he wants us to repeat it. Otherwise, they've given one line. So here, what he has to say in verses 48, 49, and 50. Wow, Brother Stan, that's fast. <laughs> I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Remember, it is this crowd that had introduced manna into the discussion in an attempt to test the authenticity of Jesus' claims. But the Lord Jesus continues to make his claims and says, no, you do not want that manna. That manna had serious limitations. It was food that perished. It was food that needed constant gathering. Because if you still remember, every Friday they had to go and pick up and gather the manna. And it was food that was only for the temporary nourishment of the physical body. But over time, all those that ate it perished in the desert. And you don't want to have that kind of food. And in contrast to what your fathers had in the desert, there is better bread. Whose origin is heavenly and that bread is himself and this bread has 
the quality that whoever eats of it will not die. And so the one who eats just the manna is going to die physically as did your ancestors and will also die spiritually. But this bread from heaven gives life so that one does not die. It gives eternal life. It gives spiritual life. It gives what is in itself. So this bread from heaven, it guarantees the one who eats it that even when they die, they shall fully be recovered. Both body and spirit. That's how these two kinds of bread are different. This food, this bread from heaven is not subject to the law of sin and death and so it preserves all that eat it. Very important statement. And so Jesus says, verse 51, in our sermon is from verses 46 to 51. And verse 51. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so the Lord says, I am the living bread. The bread that was not made from dead things. See the distinction? This bread is living. But how can you have living bread? Because when you're making bread, you make it from dead things and you bake it. This bread is living because of its origin. It's from heaven. So it matters the origin of the bread that one eats. Jesus is saying by this language, he is talking about his incarnation. He is talking about he self being clothed with human flesh that he may be the provision. Because the issue here is provision. He is talking about his coming out of heaven and taking up human flesh that he may be the provision, the bread that does not die, the bread that always lives. And that's why you would say, I have this commandment from my father to put down my life and to take it up again. No one can take my life away from me. Why? Because he is the living bread. He is life in himself. So he says, I have clothed myself with human flesh that I may be the living bread for my people. That I may be the provision that gives life to my people. So the incarnation of Christ is necessary for salvation. You could not be saved if Jesus did not come and take up human flesh. It was necessary. The incarnation of Christ is necessary for your salvation. It is his flesh as the God-man that helps in the work of salvation. And it is important 
that one deals with this bread. Because there's no other way that one can have life outside eating this very living bread. The one who eats this bread will live forever. And this has to be something important because if God has to say it, if God comes to you and of all the things that you may want to hear from him, and he comes and says, this is the bread that will cause you to live forever. I think that's very important. So God wants us to know how we can live forever. Jesus says, the one who eats this bread will live forever and the bread which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The conversation gets deeper and confusing. But the Jews are going to get confused and going to get mad. The disciples are going to get confused and also get mad. But what was Jesus saying? The Lord is making the stakes of salvation very high. So as to humble the Jews. But he was not just making them high to, to bring them to the end of themselves. He was just stating the truth of salvation. Jesus is saying, He is the one that God has given from heaven. And that it is necessary that he comes and gives his flesh for salvation. Jesus is talking about the theology of the cross. In the context of the loaves of bread and them seeking him to get more. And so he couches his teaching on bread. As he has couched his other teaching on other things. In John chapter 3, he talked about salvation in terms of being born again and the bronze serpent. In John chapter 4, he talks about salvation in terms of the giving of the water. But now he talks about salvation in terms of the bread. All those conversations have one unity in that they are discussing or exegeting or explaining the work of Christ in salvation. That's the point. So this is not bread per se, but about the work and picture of what and who Christ is in the context of life and salvation. But a lot of Christians see this language of Jesus as Eucharistic language. They see it as Lord's table language. They see it as sacramental language. They see the elements of Christ's body and the drinking of his blood as saying this was John's way of introducing the Lord's table. I need you to understand this. But it's, it's big. A lot of people, when they come to this part of John, they understand Jesus as saying this is how you get eternal life. They take the literal Statements by Jesus to say that you have to eat the body of Christ like literally eating like you eat bread from the store. 
and that when you eat that bread and put it in your mouth, that is how you actually possess eternal life. And the argument is, John does not have a record of the institution of the Lord's Supper as the other Gospels have. So this was John's way of introducing the Lord's Supper. I've read this many times, and I've put it in the context of what we know about salvation. And when you read it, in the context of the theology of Jesus in the book of John, you can get communion theology. You can get the theology of the Lord's table from this discourse. But you cannot get eternal life from eating the elements of communion. There's no life in communion bread. Communion bread and the wine are made from things that are earthy. Things that have died and have been begged. Made from the very things that the Lord said to the Jews, this is food that perishes. If communion elements would give life, then that would negate the Lord's teaching about giving another type of bread. Understand that. Jesus said, the bread that gives life has its origin outside of this world. Communion elements have their origin from this world. Bread by itself does not have life. You can't plant bread, put bread into the ground, and get a plant out of it. Because it's dead. There's no life in it. The bread that gives life is the bread of God, not from Lifeway. And not from Walmart or Meyer. The bread that gives life is the person of Jesus. It's Jesus himself who is the bread that is being talked about. As he said, I am the bread of life. When we have the Lord's table, the elements do not turn to the actual physical body of Christ and the blood of Christ. The wine that we drink and the bread that we break do not turn into the actual physical body of Jesus Christ. That is a misunderstanding of the work of salvation. The theological understanding of eating of this bread was defined by the Lord himself in the previous verses. And this is what the Lord would have us to understand what that eating of him is. Listen to verse 47, uh, maybe verse 29. When he said to the Jews, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. You believe in him whom he has sent. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. 
So the understanding of the eating cannot be separate from all the previous statements about how one gets eternal life. They can't be separate. Remember, the Lord's mission is to teach sinners how to possess eternal life. And he has already labored in many portions to explain it to us. For instance, in John 5, 24, this is what he said. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. In John three fourteen to 16, the Lord said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So the underlying theme is that eternal life is only had by believing in the Son. And it can only be had this way and no other way. There are no multiple ways of getting eternal life. Because if that is true, as John has recorded for us, then eating of this bread this flesh of Jesus cannot be introducing a different condition of salvation than that which has already been given. If Jesus has to be raised like the bronze serpent for salvation of those who were being beaten and those who had been beaten got cured by just looking then the eating of the flesh of Jesus is the equivalent of looking, is the equivalent of believing in him and hearing his words. But there's an important clue also in verse 51 that will give us some more light as to what the Lord was saying. He says this, And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The bread which I will give. So, whilst this bread is from heaven, it is staring at them. There is yet a giving that has to be done before it is made effectual to the end of giving life. The bread which I will give that is looking forward to a future event. It's looking forward to a future event. It's looking forward to the cross. This bread is given as his flesh. Where did Christ give his flesh? He gave his flesh on the cross. There is a reaping and a tearing that has to be done to this bread before it can give life. So this conversation is going to Mount Calvary. That's where Jesus is headed. He's taking us to the cross. And so this language is anticipating the actual work of atonement on the cross. 
But there's another clue. Jesus used the word for. The bread also which I'll give for the life of the world is my flesh. For is the language of substitutionary atonement. He died for our sins. In place of us, Jesus is anticipating his work as the substitute for those that the Father gave him who are in the world. And this work is going to be made effectual when he gets raised on the cross. And that is corroborated with other statements in the book of John where Jesus says, when I have been lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. It's similar understanding. Jesus is putting the cross at the center of how eternal life is had. But he uses flesh to get more attention from the Jews. And the Jews are not amused by that because later on, they're going to accuse him and say, well, this man wants to give us his flesh to eat. That's gross, Jesus. Don't do that. Don't say that. So Jesus was saying, he had to be crucified for salvation, for the water of life to flow, for his blood which cleanses from all sin to flow. And so the cross is the place from which this bread this flesh is made available for sinners to partake. If life could be had just by eating communion bread and drink the wine, then there would be no need of the cross. Jesus would have come, or he didn't even need to come, just send an angel and say, God, tell my people, you start eating bread and wine and you shall be saved. Okay? I don't think that's the theology that Jesus has for us here. He is talking about his work. Because we know this. In the book of John, John has already introduced Jesus to us as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John is expanding that theology and saying, without death or shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And so Jesus has to be raised on the cross to pay for our sins, for our justification, our reconciliation with God, and our adoption. He has to be put on the cross so that all those that the Father gave to him will not perish. And so the Holy Communion or the Lord's Table was given as a memorial of the death of the Lord and the establishment of the new covenant. So you have to make a distinction. The actual work that serves is on the cross. The communion table is just a memorial. It's for us to remember that work. As the work that brought us into the covenant of grace. The work that lifted the condemnation that was on us. So in the establishment of the Lord's table in Luke 22, 19 to 20. And this was the Lord just before he went on the cross. We are told that he took bread 
gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them. And if this was enough for salvation, then Jesus would have said, okay, that's it, we're done. But he says, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So now the doing of communion is in remembrance of the reality of Christ dying on the cross. And likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. To which the apostle Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 11.26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Till he comes. So the Lord's table was established as an ordinance to commemorate the Lord's death on the cross. And it is also this death that established the new covenant of grace, the New Testament. And by the way, it's digression. The new covenant does not show up until Christ gets on the cross. When Jesus was walking in shoe leather, he was talking to people who were under the old covenant. The new covenant, a covenant is not established without the death of the testator. So Christ, when he's talking to the Jews, he is talking to people who are under the old. The new covenant is established in his blood, as he said. And this was not by the pricking of his blood, but by going on the cross. So ordinances do not save anyone. We are not saved by baptism and we are not saved by eating the table. But those are theological representations or symbols of our union with the Lord. But the actual substance is in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So does the language of Jesus in John 6 contain or insinuate or suggest Lord's Table Theology? Yes, it does give us Lord's Table Theology. But it does not tell us that this is how you get saved by eating communion elements. Okay? The work of Jesus on the cross is what alone gave us the life that we have, the forgiveness of sins. So the usage of the word flesh by Jesus has in view his own death on the cross. That's what he's talking about. It's looking to his death on the cross as the only basis upon which life is given. So in closing, we're actually closing. Can you believe that? This is what we're saying. Natural man born after the first Adam, cannot and will not come to Christ by their own will, by their own resources. Natural men, by their own selves, do not and cannot see the beauty and glory of Christ. They are offended by Jesus and everything that he says. And such were all of us before grace came to us. But how did we come from that? God the Father was pleased in himself and his son, to whom he gave a people 
that they may come to Christ and behold his glory. So the only reason why you are coming to Christ is because the Father loves the Son. If the Father did not love the Son, then you are in serious trouble. If you exist and the Father did not put you in the Son, then you are in serious trouble. But there's no way to put yourself in the Son. But also, the flip side of that is, if you are in the Son, there's no way to get yourself out of the Son. It's impossible. You can't. And we know that we are in the Son because we believe in the Son. That's the only way that we're going to know. So we come to the Son, and by that we mean we believe in Jesus. And the coming to Christ is what Jesus is saying is the eating of his flesh. And the ones who eat the flesh of Christ, that is the ones who believe in him, have eternal life, present tense. And the beauty of the gospel, the security of the gospel, we should never get tired of hearing it. I know you are getting tired, but don't get tired. The beauty of the gospel is that God has put you into an eternal blessedness that can be taken away by you or anybody else. It is the will of the Father that of all that he gave the Son, none will be lost, Crystal. And so the Son was incarnated for this very purpose. When Jesus came to earth, he had the names of all those that the Father gave to him before they even showed up. So he came for the purpose of securing their salvation that he also may raise them at the last day. So in all these statements, the Lord Jesus is putting us and preparing us to the cross as that central work, that critical work that is needed for your salvation, that is needed for you to be kept, for the full salvation that is yet to be revealed. So your salvation is by the will of the Father and has been secured by the work of the Son. We do not choose Christ. You can't choose Christ. The Father chose you in Christ that you may come to him and you are going to come to him. Salvation is not a random work in which God is hoping to find some kind-hearted people who will choose his son. God the Father is the one who made the choice and all those that he gave to the son will come to the Son, and are secured in the Son. These will come to the Son because the Father teaches them to come to the Son. And those that are taught by the Father know that Christ is sufficient for everything required of them by the Father. God cares that the Son gets all the glory in all this transaction. And so those who have been taught of the Father who come and happily eat, that is, believe in the Son of God. And that is why he said, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. And he also says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. That says the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your throne in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. We honor you. We thank you for his willingness to come and give his life, his flesh, to us who were dying, who were dead in trespasses and sins, who were lifeless, that we may in him have eternal life. And it is the testimony of the Spirit that All those who believe in Christ Jesus have eternal life. And let this be the joy of your people. That with all the things that are happening in the world, all the craziness that we hear and see, that we do not belong to this world. We are just but passing through. And Lord, may you keep us from stumbling. But we have this testimony by your son that Of all those that the Father gave to him, he will lose not one. And so, Lord, we thank you for the security of the gospel of Christ Jesus. And, Lord, now we also pray for your people that you keep them. As they go out, you know their needs, you know their struggles. We pray for members of their families who have not yet learned the truth, who are yet to hear the truth. They may be going to churches, Lord, as many are, and yet they have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray, Lord, for your light to be shone in their hearts that they may hear, that they may be saved. Our Lord, we pray for Brother Robert and Sister Becca, who also are not here, that you may grant them a safe passage back home. And Lord, we ask for your grace upon them and their family. And we pray, Lord, that you gather us again next week, that we may hear one more time what the Lord has accomplished for his people. We pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.